Recovery Elevator, episode 113. And this group, this group became my, you know, my support system, my family, and, and they helped me in just numerous ways. And more, but mostly it was just the flat-out community of it all. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for two years, six months, two weeks, and two days. On today's podcast, we've got Michael. He lives in LA. He's been sober for 32 years. He's 60 years old and has got some killer value bombs during this podcast interview. He also has some really good things to say about sugar addiction. Hmm. I know a lot of us out there are struggling to monitor our sugar intake. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Please do me a favor. If you enjoy the Recovery Elevator podcast, it's a goal of mine to get 200 reviews in iTunes before May. Go to iTunes and leave a five-star review if you love the podcast. It helps us boost in the rankings, and I'd really appreciate it. If you want to do the virtual run for recovery, this is a nonprofit, A-A-L-R-M, which stands for Alive Again Life Recovery Mission. You can join us on Saturday, May 20th, 2017, either in person in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, or you can do the run virtually wherever you're located. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash run and use the promo code recoveryelevator for a discount off your registration. Okay. Let's get started. I was perusing uh, social media, shall we say, and I saw an interview with a Jeremy Brodick on CNN, and he is from Windward Way Recovery. Now, I want to be clear, this podcast episode is not about politics. I encourage you to take off your red hat, your blue hat, and put on your hat what's good for the average American person hat. It doesn't matter who you voted for in the 2017 election. We got what we got. And this is what they plan on doing. According to Jeremy Broderick in the CNN interview, the GOP planned replacement is worse than the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, for those who are struggling with addiction. With the Affordable Care Act, when the Surgeon General identified addiction as a mental illness slash disease, treatment was covered under Obamacare and Medicaid, reversing policy from the 80s Just Say No campaigns. When Donald Trump ran for office in 2016, his message seemed clear, cut taxes and help addicts. At a town hall meeting in Farmington, New Hampshire, he said, we are going to try and help the young people and the old people and the middle-aged people and everybody that got addicted. Maybe, probably, maybe not. Yes, we should do all the above, but maybe not any of that. I added that last part in there, but he did say the part about helping young, old, middle-aged people who got addicted. 
This is a cool fact about Trump that I did not know. He is a non-drinker and non-drug user. This gentleman is abstinent from these substances. Although Trump is not necessarily in recovery, these words resonated with me and others in the recovery community. Furthermore, Trump care isn't what it seems to be either. Looking closely at what the president proposes, it's full holes. Again, this is according to Jeremy Broderick. The needed protection for people struggling with alcohol, with drugs, is simply not there. Trump said that he would repeal and replace the Affordable Health Care Act. The replacement, however, it seems, is even worse than the original. And it looks like they were not stopping with the Affordable Care Act either. Republicans are also suggesting a rollback of Medicaid. Hmm, we've been hearing a rollback of Medicaid for a couple decades now, and we've been hearing the rollback of Obamacare for about three, four, five years or since it was put into place. In short, both of these programs offer critical coverage for people who need inpatient and outpatient treatment. Republican leaders such as Speaker Paul Ryan are scrambling to find a combination of laws and policies to fill the gaps that the Affordable Health Care Act will leave behind. Ryan pushes for accessibility instead of universal coverage. Anyone who has worked directly with addicts knows that this isn't enough. The out-of-pocket costs for treatment can be astronomical. We're talking $1,000 a day here for some facilities. And other facilities are much more than that. For a quality treatment center, insurance is practically mandatory to defray the high costs, and this is a life-and-death matter for so many. Without treatment, many addicts and alcoholics will simply die with their disease. With every day that passes, another life is lost. Parents lose their children, children lose their parents, families are torn apart. And the worst part is, it's all preventable. According to Jeremy, this is an issue that isn't about right and left, but right and wrong. This is the number one public health crisis right now. The mandate says that after 2019, several mandates requiring funding for the recovery and mental illness community will be lifted. According to Jeremy, he says that odds are, during the CNN interview, someone will overdose from heroin since 129 people die of an overdose every day. That's around 47,085 people a year, and two people will die from alcohol abuse. About actually two to three people during the recording of just the introduction of this podcast episode alone will die due to alcohol-related causes. Since addiction costs society nearly $442 billion per year, lost productivity, and criminal justice costs, in healthcare costs. For every dollar spent on treatment, it saves $4 in healthcare costs and $7 in criminal justice costs. Here's a big one. For every $1 spent on education, interventions, or early prevention regarding addiction, it saves $58 in future healthcare costs. Now, I went to the websites that Jeremy Broddick mentioned, and I couldn't find the data of where they got these figures, but it's pretty interesting. Now, Jeremy says the White House has pledged $500 million to fight the opioid epidemic, but that isn't nearly enough to combat addiction. And shouldn't there be about a million dollars pledged for alcohol since roughly two to three people, again, 85,000 people each year, die from alcohol just in the United States? That's more than all the other drugs combined. So you would think there should be you know, a relative amount of money pledged to just alcohol. But back to the 500 million, with 21 million Americans suffering with addiction, which is about the same amount as diabetes, 1.5 times the amount of cancer, the funds simply don't match up. Only one in 10 will ever receive the care and treatment. For every 10 people struggling with alcohol addiction, only one will be lucky enough to get sober and babble into a microphone and call it a podcast. For every Ben Affleck going into treatment, there are nine other celebrities that don't get the help they need, and some of them don't survive their addictions. That would be Prince, Whitney Houston, Hank Williams, Amy Winehouse. Again, I want to steer away from a political podcast, but it's good to know what's going on in the recovery community and the government. 
Before we get to Michael, I want to comment on something he says. He mentions that early sobriety was tiring. It was sober party after sober party. Yeah, that does sound exhausting, but it also sounds awesome. You can have fun in recovery and in early sobriety and in sobriety as a whole. The cool thing about living a life without alcohol is you don't need it to have fun. So now let's hear from Michael. Michael, how are you? I'm well, Paul. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Mike, let's jump right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober, Paul, for 32 years, February 15th. Did I just hear 32 years? Yeah, 32 years. Wow. I got I got sober really young. I was just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, 32 years. Mike, give me two seconds and let me look on my wall right here and let me let me see what my record is. Seriously, give me give me like five seconds. Okay. Nope, we had Paul, which I think was episode eight or nine with 34 years. I think you're in second place there, but awesome job yep. on 34 years. I cannot wait to hear. How you did it? So, how old? How old are you now? Oh, I'm 60 years old, but I act a lot younger. No, just kidding. Yeah, 60 years old. 60 years old. Yeah. And before we get further into the interview, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe what you do for a living. You just said your age. You're 60, and uh, you know maybe if do you have a family and and give us some hobbies. What do you like to do for fun, Mike? I do have uh, two. Identical twin boys who are the love of my life. Good boys. Yeah. I own a portfolio of health and wellness websites and work from home. It's a nice gig. Most of my, all my team is virtual all over the, all over the world, really. It's a little isolating, so I get out to meetings. It's good. Well, for fun, I get out and, you know, hike a little, yoga a little, I walk a lot. I moved to Los Angeles really to, there's a lot of events in the internet space and internet world, so I, I like to go to those kind of meetups and stuff. Just getting out meet folks. Is it still raining a lot out there in L.A.? Thank God it's over. I mean, it's, it was, we really needed it, but it's finally over with. Yeah, no, it's beautiful today. I was out there speaking in on January 21st, and I have not seen rains like that. I mean, it was a freaking monsoon, but it sounds like you guys really needed the rain. Oh, we did. We really did. For four years, we needed the ring, literally. I'm not exaggerating. Four <laughs> years, we needed <laughs> Now, are, are you in, like, you downtown in L.A. area or, like, in one of the surrounding cities? I'm right in Hollywood, right near Hollywood, right in Hollywood, right, literally, literally almost across the street from CBS. Okay. Nice. Cool, cool. Well, let's get into your story a little bit. If my math is correct, you got sober at age 28. Am I correct? I did. All right. I did go to public school and it did me well. And was it age 28 that you decided that you had a problem with alcohol or was it something before that? Oh, no. Long before that. I I think I, I, so I was reading, you know, kind of the preview for your stuff. And I was thinking, I first started really concerned. My uncle died of the liver when he was 49 years old and I was in college. And, and I had drank alcoholically since I was 14 years old. I mean, the first time I drank, I blacked out, literally. And so... You know, I, I worried about it all the time, and I got in a car accident when I was 19 years old and got arrested for DWI. That didn't, it stopped me from driving and drinking. It didn't stop me from drinking. Mm-hmm. So when my, my uncle died while I was in college, 21 or 22, and I started researching alcoholism. And I quit drinking when I was 23. Well, I can't, I can't say that. I, I, I stopped drinking for, for the next five years. I, I probably got 
I drank probably a total of maybe five or six or ten times. I can't remember, but between 23 and 28, that five-year period. But I never stopped using drugs. Smoked pot every day, all day, literally five, ten times a day. And cocaine was my downfall when I was 28 years old. So it was a, it was a long process. I was wet in the bed like twice a week and... You know, I crashed the car. It, it, it was just an overwhelming, there was just no way for me to continue drinking. I would spend hours in blackouts uh, mm-hmm. and, and have to apologize and whatever. You know, I'm you know, sure your audience knows that. You know, you know what that's like. It's Definitely. not fun. There's not a, it's not, it's something even at 23 years old, I realized that there's no way I can continue my life this way. The alcohol went first. But it was by no means, it was probably, it would, at the end of the day, I'd say my drug of choice was pot, but I, I think that, because only because I could not physically drink. Uh, sure. I went to uh, vodka on the rocks so I wouldn't have enough beer in my system to wet the bed, you know? Yeah, the, and, those are uh, two requirements of being on the podcast, or you know, two of many, is if, if you drink and wet the bed and you've crashed some cars, so you're on the right <laughs> podcast, Mike. And, you know, yeah. well, if you can remember back then, what were your drinking habits like? How much how much were you drinking when you were blacking out? When I was in college, I ran the most popular night spot in the college town. So we would what we called punch in at midnight. Bars were open at four in the morning. So I would punch in at midnight. That means my bosses really didn't care because we made more, the, my partner, the, the guy that I worked with, we made more money than anybody on Friday and Saturday nights. So he didn't care what we did as long as, you know, like the money was there. So we would start drinking about midnight and, and stop about seven. But a case of beer, uh, uh, 20 bottles, that kind of thing in that time period was very common. You know, sure. it was like, I mean, it was not unusual to drink 15, 20 more bottles of beer and stop remembering what we, how many you were drinking around you know 18 or 19. So, Did you ever yeah, try was, to put rules into place? Say like, you know what, I'm only doing 10 <laughs> bottles tonight. Yeah, right. You, know, you laugh because you know those thing, rules the, don't work. The, 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 only, the, only, <laughs> the, yeah, the only rule that I had really was time because when you're, when you're like at events, at college and, and wherever, you want to drink during the day when other people are drinking. There is absolutely no way that I could drink during the day because I couldn't make it to at night. And I wanted, and my body and my psyche would try, but I was such a mess. So I had to do it by starting late. So if I was to go out with you, know, you at, to a party or whatever, I could not drink until literally we got to the party. Mm-hmm. And then I would probably make it home and maybe even remember getting home. But that was, like, rare. So the only real rule I had was the time that I started because I kind of knew how long I had at that point. Sure. I I used to think that my blackout, when I was in Spain, the blackouts would come after, like, two hours. You know, I'd start drinking, then about two hours of memory left, then it would just all go away. It sounds like it was something similar with you as well. Yeah, and, and, you know, I would try to drink slower, you know, but it didn't work that well. Now, you mentioned pot was the drug of choice. I've heard a lot of people say alcohol and pot are the gateway drugs. Which one do you think led you to cocaine? That's a good question as far as led me to cocaine. I, I, I wasn't doing much cocaine back in the early days. It started, I moved to Florida and was running my clubs there. And that's where I really got, I mean, I, I take that back. I mean, we were doing some, but not really, didn't have that kind of access. Sure. So it was probably... Pot at that point. 
just to come, you know, to wake up, be at work and whatever, because I was stoned all the time. Gotcha. Well, I, I'm excited to hear with this 32 years of sobriety, A, how you did it and, and how you've maintained it. You know, how, how did you do it when you first got sober at age 28? Well, like I said, my heart hurt all day, every day from abusing cocaine. And I walked into a meeting, a recovery meeting on All Saints Day, November 1st. But I could not stop smoking. I stopped, quit cocaine that very day and never had any since. And, but I couldn't smoke, quit smoking pot. So it lasted another two months. I'd go to a couple meetings and everybody was nice. I think the answer to your question really is I was lucky in a lot of ways that I was literally enveloped. I was overwhelmed and brought in to a, 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 a 12-step group, I think that's fun on your podcast, of people. It was Narcotics Anonymous at the time. Uh, because I didn't believe us. I, at the time, I hadn't had a drink in 18 months or two years or something. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't think I needed AA. So I went to NA because it was you know, drugs and pills. I used to put pills that come down from cocaine or whatever. So it was, I was literally just enveloped by this community of love, of, of loving people. I don't know what happened to it, and, and I haven't been to that many meetings. I go to AA meetings now, but the enemy means hugs, not drugs, was a big thing, and, and they were big huggers, you know. And sure. I just, it was something that, for me, I don't think my family's not huggers, you know, <laughs> I guess it's, so I, I, I don't know. It, 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 spoke, it spoke to me on a, a kind of a psychic level, a community level. I, I, I tell a story that there was this core group of about 25 of us there, and this is, remember now, the Miami Vice times, right? Mm-hmm. This is when cocaine's flooding Florida. And of that core group of 25, 14 of us married one another. And 18 months later, we got three or four meetings in the 13th largest metro in the United States to, uh, to like 50 meetings, right, in 18 months because it was so insane. And it was just one sober party after the other. And I literally didn't have time to use drugs because every one of my friends had changed to a group of people who were recovery was the focus of their life. So would you recommend for, for listeners out there, would you recommend that, you know, choosing who they hang out with wisely is important to them if they would like to get sober? It's almost everything. I mean, and it feels sad a little bit. I I think, again, I was lucky. I was blessed. I was not in my hometown. I don't think I could have done it in my hometown or, or wherever I, I was. 1,200 miles from home. I didn't know that many people from working in the bars anyway or anyone that I cared about, really. Mm-hmm. And this group this group became my you know, my support system, my family, and, and they helped me in just numerous ways. And more, but mostly it was just the flat-out community of it all. It really oh, that's, that's a big word that we say many times on this podcast. And can you explain to us the importance of community with getting sober and staying sober? To me, it's everything. If you release the dogma, if you release the, all of the things that people say about uh, recovery communities of all kinds, and I don't just mean drug stuff, I mean of all kinds. If you release all of the arguing and, and, and fighting about evidence base and this and that, at its core, the most successful stuff, and this goes back way before AA into the late 1800s, it's community. It's people wanting the same things in life, moving in the same direction, and if and obviously, because society doesn't really accept it that well, 
you're you're in an insular community that I use the word love and love you up a little bit, but they do they they you just feel a kinship with them, and you don't feel alone, and you don't feel different, and you don't feel weird, and it just helps. I mean, it, I think it's I think it's very 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 valuable. Those are some big words at the end you just said there. One thing alcoholism is very good at doing is isolating people. And the, you always feel isolated and the isolation of it is just miserable. Now, what advice would you have to that person who's sitting on the couch right now listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast and they're thinking they can do this alone? It is a great question because it, it, at my core, I'm an introvert. And what I describe as luck truly was because of the level of acceptance and, that I felt that I didn't feel weird picking up the phone and calling people. And I didn't feel weird showing up at the events and the meetings because people included me. It, it, to me, to my mind, and I've studied the history backwards and forwards of self-help movements, and it really is about the community. You, you cannot, I, I personally believe it's almost impossible to do this alone. There are some programs out there that say it, it is, but to me, why would you want to, number one, and number two, I just don't think it, it's possible in today's society with the way alcohol and stuff is treated because it, there's still a stigma to it all, and that stigma uh, prevents people from... If they don't have the community who don't feel or express the stigma, who actually embrace the the beauty that is not drinking or not using drugs, you know, I, I don't personally, I, I haven't seen a lot of success stories of people that try and do it alone. I guess that's the best way to put it. Neither have I. And I personally was one of the failure stories because I tried to do this alone many times. And it wasn't until I fully embraced a community. And that was the AA meetings that I was attending. And it eventually kind of evolved into Cafe RE, the private membership community. It's impossible, in my opinion, to do this sure. alone. I mean, I'm sure you can do it, but can you do it and retain your happiness and, and continue to grow as a person? That's going to be tough to do. And you mentioned earlier, sober party after sober party. That just has a beautiful ring to it. And now when I hear the words drunk fest, I just want to throw up my own <laughs> mouth. You know, it's so cool and refreshing to see that there are sober establishments popping up all across the world, sober music festivals. Listen to that again, sober party after sober party. I don't know about you, but that to me just sounds awesome. And I want to hear more of that. I've never heard about, you know, back-to-back -back sober parties. That's, that's so cool. I love that. You mentioned AA earlier. Now, when did you make the transition from NA to AA? Well, what happened is what I was describing from going from three or four meetings a week to 50 meetings a week. It's a big city, but it's still, if you think about it, there's only 25 of us or 40, you know, 40 kind of more maybe, but right around that much. And then growing to 50 meetings, we were all sponsoring five, ten people at a time. Somebody with six months a year, they were old timers. Mm -hmm. We got to the point where we needed to be, I mean, having one or two years is, you know, people think it's a lot, but it's, I like the old timers saying, you know, it takes five years to get walking around since. And we were attempting the impossible to try and sponsor five or seven or ten people at the same time when we were ourselves not that far along. And so it was a it was a time period, Paul, when there was a lot of insurance money for treatment centers, and they were building them left and right over there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we got a lot of information because everybody, half my friends went to work there as techs. And so we got a lot of information. Information was flowing in. And the best information or advice we got was you guys 
need to start going to where there's some long-term recovery because there are other challenges. People are starting to relapse. People are starting to die, you know, with six months a year or whatever. And so we started going, I, and almost everyone literally in my little core group there started going to the AA meetings and that's how it happened. And that's the focal uh, reason you guys were looking for seeking longer term sobriety to surround yourself with people who've had longer term sobriety. Correct. Exactly right. And what do you think, what impact do you think that had on your sobriety? It it made a huge, huge difference. It really did because, and it was not that old then. And, and really I started to go to these black belt men's meetings, a men's meetings. Right. And they were like, they were rough at the first because, you know, there was so much, Party love, stay stay clean stuff. These guys sit down, shut up. You don't have enough time to be talking. <laughs> At first, I was like, yeah, right. But then, when I started to listen to them, man, those guys, even their their rough ex- exterior was there, but these guys really cared. I mean, they really cared because I think they had seen so much over the time period. And there's, you know, recovery has you know, evolutionary periods over the one year, two year, five year, 10 year time period. And some people get the same year over and over again, you know, mm-hmm. they don't really ever get forward. They really just kind of, they, they white knuckle it a little bit. And those guys taught us what real recovery was because, you know, they had seen someone. So people get the same year over and over. I haven't heard that yet, but I really like it. What's your advice to, to finding real recovery? My advice for finding real recovery, well, again, it's, it's, you know, you've got to tap into the resources that are there, the people that have done it before you, people that have a little bit of time, because they, they carry a wealth of knowledge and they're willing to give it away for nothing. And it's just really important because there are milestones. I mean, I can tell you different ones, like after I got divorced and different, different time periods in my recovery, I was like six, seven years clean. My entire world collapsed. And I've heard this story. I just heard it. I went to a, an event recently, another guy of 30 years, and he, his, he collapsed at 20 years. I mean, his entire world fell apart. Hmm. But it was because there were other things, sex, money, work, uh, relationships, things that they, gambling, whatever, things that people had substituted for their recovery. And some of the issues were not ever brought to the surface. And then when the sex, money, gambling, whatever was taken away or, or started to brought under control, then the emotional stuff came out. I call it my dark night of the soul six or seven years in when I got a divorce and that relationship addiction kind of stuff moved away, was, was not there. I, I had to deal with other emotional issues. So again, there's, there's different time period or different evolutionary parts in recovery that are not evident right at the beginning. And usually we need to experience these, you know, these times of pain to experience this growth. And I'm looking forward to the growth, but I'm not too sure. I'm looking forward to, to knowing the sour because it's, you know, life happens. It's very important right. to realize that life doesn't happen to us. It just happens. All we can control is how we react. And um, I'm, sure. I'm just thankful today that I will not be reacting with the drink. And I'm hopeful that tomorrow will be the same answer. Now, you've got, you know, at 60 years old. What advice would you have to your younger self? I was thinking about this question, actually. What I would say is, like, you have to kind of get some world experience in separating yourself from what you think is real now. One of the things I found really strange 
when I got kind of back into the business world and things started moving again is that I realized that the people that I had gravitated towards as a young person were the people who were like my family, which is a hard-drinking, hard-fighting Irish family, you know, Mm -hmm. and that most people out there do not really drink to this kind of excess. And it's okay to find and hang out with those people, and they're cool, they're great, you know, and they don't really even ask or care whether or not you drink. That's the part that I, when I first thought of it, everybody's going to, and everybody did, that was my regular friend, they're like, oh, they're not drinking, get a drink, come on, get him a drink. You yeah, know? Come on, Mike, was like, bartender. Yeah, 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 get him a drink. And, and literally, my own family would push the alcohol. I mean, even though I professed that I didn't want to or it was an alcoholic or whatever, I, they, they wanted me to, they, for, for, for their reasons, not for mine, for theirs. Mm-hmm. And so what I would say is like, there's an entire world out there of beautiful, incredible people who, yeah, they may have a glass of wine or a beer, but drinking to excess doesn't affect them. And if you were to get a close soda with a lime in it or, or just a Coke, they wouldn't say anything or care, even if they first met you. You know what I mean? It's like that part was a huge revelation to me. And it was like, I think it's a good message to get out to folks who are thinking forward thinking how do i tell everybody i'm not drinking mike i have also found it remarkable and surprising in recoveries when i first started telling people i didn't drink you know you're just expecting the whirlwind of all these questions and answers and 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 you're almost disappointed when they don't care because the majority of people they don't care and they don't yeah unless they're your drinking friends air quotes those those tend to usually fade away when you when you quit drinking yeah the reaction is is pretty unsatisfactory this they they just don't care so if you're if if you've got trepidation out there telling a new group of friends or something that you're not going to be drinking tonight uh just put that fear aside because they they probably don't care and i want to shift gears a bit now i want to talk about sugar we are lucky to have uh, Mike, only we mentioned he has a portfolio of websites. One of them is viralrecovery.com. We'll get that to a second. But I want to talk to you guys about uh, sugar addiction. Mike has the website called sugaraddiction.com. And talk to us about how volatile the compound sugar is and how addictive it can be as well. Wow, it's a big subject. It's funny, I was listening to your, uh, a couple of your podcasts, just kind of uh, checking out things, see how what, the, what it was about. And you had one about sugar, and you were very knowledgeable. I was really impressed. I actually, you asked about gateway drugs before. I really believe that my gateway drug and most people's gateway drug is sugar. I really, really? believe that with all my heart. I believe it's the most powerful psychoactive drug on the planet in such a subtle, I think it would be the perfect pharmacological masterpiece if it weren't already in society. It would be like a Prozac as a performance and, and self-esteem enhancer. Hmm. It's a, it, it really is a powerful, powerful psychoactive. I tell people this, I don't know if you know Rodney Dangerfield, he used to have a tagline, I get no respect. And sugar gets no respect, okay, as a powerful, powerful psychoactive drug that people become biochemically addicted to. And who's, one of whose side effects, one of 141 side effects, is massive weight gain. And really... Sugar addiction is no different than any other addiction, and we're just very early in the curve in understanding that. And that part is unbelievably it's sad. I mean, when you've worked with the hundreds and hundreds of people, and 
have gone through or understand or been understand the anthropology and the evolution of the food addiction groups, meaning from OA through four or five different incarnations of other 12-step programs, where I believe locked within the four offshoots of OA are literally the, the solution to the worldwide pandemic that is obesity. And it's simple and it's easy and it's addiction. And people are physically and psychologically addicted to sugar. I mean, this goes back, even Jack Lane was talking about it in 1956 or 57 on TV. So, Mike, let, I mean, me, let me ask you a question. A lot of people, I see these posts in Cafe RE and myself when I was in early sobriety, my body just needed sugar. Now, what reaction is that in early sobriety that our body needs sugar so much? Well, need is an interesting word. It, it really is just substituting one drug for another. It was me substituting the pot for the for the alcohol, the pot and the cocaine for the alcohol. It's still an addictive substance, and you needed it because you needed a mental break. Hmm. And here's the thing with 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 sugar. At, at our age, at anyone's age past adulthood, the only thing you're doing with sugar is A, fighting off withdrawals unless you're going to ingest a massive amount, and that becomes to binge, binge and binge eating like binge drinking. And binge eating was just named to the DSM-5, which is the, you know, the psychiatric manual of diagnoses. Hmm. And people don't binge on broccoli and steak. They binge on sugar and flour products and fat and salt products. Again, it's Rodney Dangerfield. It just gets no respect as a psychoactive drug, as an emotional analgesic. Okay, an emotional queller of a, of a, it quells your emotions. It makes you feel better about yourself. Yeah, it's sweet, and yeah, it tastes, and yeah, it evolved into our society that, to the point where you can give it to a one-year-old. And turning this battleship around is going to be a massive undertaking. But at the end of the day, in my opinion, and there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> there's a few. It's it's a it's a psychoactive drug that is gets no respect as to its power in that regard. Sure. Now on, on sugaraddiction.com, you've got, you've got groups and you've got challenges starting and, you know, 30 day groups and things like that. Explain a little bit more about that. Well, again, we bring it back to the community stuff and, you know, we've got free Facebook groups where people can, you know, can get in there and talk and whatever, but the paid group is simply just buy a $37 product, which is me on a couple of videos and a hundred page book. And they, and then they get grandfathered into a, uh, a private group. What, one of the things I find is that we have we've been moving towards this over the years, basically, is that people try detoxes of all kinds, sugar detoxes of all kinds, and everybody kind of makes it their 10 or 21 days or whatever, 28 days. But it's like a yo-yo diet or like drinking or drugging, they kind of make it some period of time by white knuckling, but if they do not have a community they can tap into in months three, four, five, seven, ten, hmm. they end up going back. You know, they end up going back. And it's a very common known practice that people who lose a lot of weight most gain it back. And that's because they can't and don't institute the long-term fixes, which is that you and I know well, it, it, it is a, and I say akin to, but it, I, to my mind, it is exactly like recovery from any kind of alcohol or drug. I would agree with that. And let's now chat a little bit about viral recovery. Tell us about that. 
viral recovery is kind of my, it's my advocacy. Uh, you know, I believe that, I, I think you've probably mentioned that on your podcast, the anonymous people and Greg there and those guys trying to change stigma and healthcare around addiction. And that's basically what that site is about. It's about, more, mine is more about the, you know, people, what stuff like yourself, people are doing on the internet. Like you're, you're doing great stuff on the internet. And there's no dogma, there's no, it could be AA, smart recovery, celebrate recovery. It doesn't matter. Whatever people are having all kinds of different formulations, and I'm, I chronicle those, those things, whatever anybody's mm-hmm. doing online. So that's what we do at Viral Recovery. It's just like I said, I don't have a lot of time to work on it, but when I do, I, I really enjoy it. So I got to meet you. <laughs> yeah, I know I was on viral, viralrecovery.com. If you got some time, check it out. There's a lot of great blog posts, you know, it's, it's really cool stories about, uh, you know, your mission. It says there's, a, there's too many stories out there of, of people, you know, hitting their rock bottoms, uh, these celebrities and stuff. But some of your stories cover celebrities doing some pretty cool things in sobriety. And I like that shift of gear. Now, Mike, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer each one of these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one, Mike, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, my God. I got in a car wreck when I was 19 years old. I got arrested for DWI. I broke my collarbone. And if you can imagine this, the car spun around, and the telephone pole was sitting in front of my friend in the passenger side. So literally covered up the whole uh, glove box so there's a telephone pole in the in the car wow he walked away without a scratch thank you god yeah that that was my worst day we've all heard of that aha moment when was your oh shit moment indicating you really couldn't control your drinking you know it, I, I tried to think of this and, and I, it really was an evolution of the waking up in the morning or waking up in the morning in different places with wet pants that part was uh Woke up in the girl's apartment one time, you know, on her couch and had to steal her blanket so she couldn't see that wet <laughs> pants. Damn those wet no, pants. And yeah, yeah. Mike, with thirty two years of sobriety that is so awesome, what is your plan moving forward? My plan moving forward is to that's what I ask myself, what can I do for the rest of my life is to try and get the messages of these kinds of things and my beliefs about recovery out to as many people as I can and, and stay tight to my community. Stay tight with my community. I love the community responses. Great answer. And I'm curious about this one. You've been around the block once, twice, a couple times, with 32 years of recovery. What's your favorite resource in recovery, Mike? Well, you know, I kind of lean towards the online stuff. I think it's. I think society's changing very rapidly. And uh, not that I don't think all of the other stuff that got us here. We, we stand on the shoulders of giants, Paul. We we, we do. And and but I think. Everything is evolves, period, end of story. And we shouldn't be afraid of techn- bringing technology into recovery. And so that's my, my favorite stuff is just researching and looking. And, I love it. And, and in regards to sobriety, Mike, what's the best advice you've ever received? And then follow that up with what advice would you have to somebody who's thinking about quitting drinking? The best advice I ever received, you know, I wrote this down and I did your little sheet that I can't remember what they said. But, oh, I remember. It was uh, <laughs> I got my guy that became my sponsor uh, and, and my therapist, who only had like six months ahead of me. When I was a card-carrying atheist, when I came into the program, he walked me out. And I still had some issues with all the, the, uh, the, the God stuff. He walked me out to the stars at this retreat we were at and made me look up. And he said, do you possibly believe it's possible the whole world's about you? I mean, 
there can't be more than just you. So it helped me on a little bit of a spiritual trip at that point. So, and what was the second question? Yeah, what parting piece of guidance could you give the listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? You got to be kind to yourself, and it's a lot harder than it sounds, and it's a lot harder than it looks. You have to learn a level of self-care and self-respect and self-love that it sounds. Even for guys, it's even harder, but that you're kind to yourself. Most of us come in. Like I used to say, if someone talked to me the way I talked to myself, I'd beat the crap out of them. You know. <laughs> and, uh, that makes sense. You got to you got to stop. And that's a, that's a long process, and you've got to be aware that it's happening because that's the first thing that'll get you drinking again, De- degrading your own self, you know, not being kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Point. We've heard that multiple times on this podcast. That is very sound advice. And, Mike, before we depart, give listeners your own customized you-might-be-an-alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you're looking forward to the next couple weeks of your life and you see a party, a wedding – a business event, and it just all looks exhausting, not for the event, but the controlling and the juggling of your own drinking through that through that next beautiful time period that, that is your life. Oh, the if, mental if chess looks, match that we play to control our drinking. And, right. If that, if that looks like it's more work than the work or the, the event or the driving or the travel to get there or whatever it is, which it, to me, always was, then you might be an alcoholic. Yeah, you're probably an alcoholic at that point. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Thanks for helping me stay sober today. Well, thank you. I was an honor, and I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work, man. Thank you. You too. A great resource that Jeremy mentioned in the CNN interview was facingaddiction.org, and I highly recommend you go to that website and sign the petition to the government about the proposed budget cuts involving mental illness and addiction. I encourage you to go to facingaddiction.org. Even if you are semi-struggling with alcohol right now, I can tell you with firsthand experience, this disease is progressive. And there might be a time when you are really struggling with alcohol and you might need the treatment necessary to get sober. And before we depart, I want to mention again the Recovery Elevator Retreat we're having in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, August 24th to the 27th. Don't forget about it. Registration will be capped. If you have not seen Big Sky Country in the summer, it is a sight to see. It is absolutely breathtaking up here in the summertime. So come hang out, buy a campfire, see the stars, and let's grow in our recovery. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 